Imagine looking out the window of a plane at a glistening frozen landscape below you. Your sightseeing flight over Antarctica introduces you to panoramic views of some of the most picturesque and pristine parts of the planet. Suddenly, you hear the sound of an alarm, and that's the last thing you hear. This is Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. So, Shelley, what is your dream vacation? Oh, Stephanie, that's a good question. So I think I might have gone on my dream vacation to Greece. Ooh. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think at some point, I really would like to go and just see more of like the countryside of different places, really just get out there and explore a little bit more off the beaten path. I love doing that kind of thing. And, um, you know, that I'm glad you mentioned that because today's theme is sort of on the concept of the dream vacation. Mm. Welcome back. This is Take to the Sky, the air disaster podcast. My name is Stephanie. And this is Shelly. And today we're going to talk a little bit about, I guess, the concept of the dream vacation. Mine is also something that I have lived. Um, A couple of years ago, my husband and I went to Antarctica. It was our seventh continent. It was just an absolutely flawless trip, with one exception, uh, when we were flying back all of the flights leaving from Ushuaia were canceled due to an airline strike, and we got stuck there for three days. Oh, no. But that is a story for another time. Antarctica was pretty fantastic, Uh, and it's everything you'd expect. It's snow and ice. It's penguins just kind of lazily wandering by. It's whales and sea lions and just all of the, you know, all of the things that you might expect from that kind of a vacation. And that's why this particular story, the story that we are going to chat about today, was of particular interest to me. Uh, Today, we're going to chat a little bit about Air New Zealand Flight 901. Mm -hmm. So between 1977 and 1979, Air New Zealand offered a sightseeing flight from Auckland to Antarctica. Mm kind of a cool idea when you think about it. The flight didn't actually land on the continent, so this is not sort of the vacation where you're going to get to walk around and say you set foot on Antarctica or anything like that. It was designed just to allow passengers to get to see Antarctica from above. Still very much worth the time. So the premise of the flight is really interesting. Flights would depart at 8 a.m. and fly all the way to Antarctica as part of a guided tour. The journey itself was narrated by an expert on the continent. Um, That person would point out some of the interesting spots that you were flying over, and they'd also share some of the facts and the history of the continent with passengers. The flight also included a chance to fly very close to McMurdo Sound, which is an absolutely stunning part of the continent. It's very famous for very heavy and very thick ice that typically surrounds it. So, you know, when you're picturing Antarctica, you're probably picturing something that looks like McMurdo Sound. And even during the summer, um, it can be very difficult to navigate McMurdo Sound by boat because of the ice. Uh, So because of that, uh, it posts a problem to people who winter over at nearby stations like McMurdo Station. Um, But it is a great aerial destination because the ice, frankly, is a lot prettier when you're looking down at it rather than when you're on a boat kind of stuck in it. That makes Uh, sense. Yeah, an absolute, you know, just awesome destination. So the flight would land in Christchurch, also in New Zealand, for refueling and for a crew change before taking off for the final leg, which would take everyone back to Auckland. And passengers would be back on the ground by 9 p.m. It was a really long day. 
of travel when you think about it. That's 13 hours, um, especially when you consider that there weren't any breaks to land. You're not going to get off the plane. You're not walking around to explore. Uh, but Antarctica is nothing if not a very remote place to go. Um, for a lot of people, just the chance to see it is going to be more than enough. So one of the best parts of Flight 901 was the price. And you think about what it would cost us today if we were going to take some sort of a sightseeing trip. And actually, if you were to picture flying from Auckland, crossing over, seeing Antarctica from above, back to New Zealand that night, what would you think that might cost? I feel like it would be very expensive. Kind of one of those serious luxury items, Yes, right? like you're making a major investment. Like this is obviously something that you really want to do. And by the way, it, it sounds like an amazing trip. <laughs> right. And in this case, it is. It's an amazing trip. And the full day journey cost people just $350. With inflation, by the way, the same flight today would be valued around $1,200. You think about it, I mean, 1200 bucks for what is effectively a one-way trip, sort of. I mean, kind of round trip, but you're not really landing. You, we all probably think twice about spending that kind of money or making that kind of investment. But still, 1200 bucks. Um, you know, that's what it would cost today. Especially for going, what that gives them, right, is it gives them access to places that they probably otherwise would not really go to sea. Yeah, you know, by comparison, if you were to do a two-week trip to Antarctica, that can run in the tens of thousands easily, even before you add in things like the flight to where you'd meet a cruise ship and, you know, all of the, the different expenses that come with that. Right. So really, I mean, almost a value. But yeah, for uh, for the low, low price of $350, that's what you would be able to do. Um, and additionally, the flight most commonly used the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 aircraft. Mm. Um, it's a three-engine wide-body jet that could carry about 270 passengers with the airline's typical layout. But the flight itself usually didn't run at capacity, and that was a great bonus for the passengers. They tended to have plenty of company on the flights. These were pretty popular routes. But they also had the space to move around and look at the windows. And when you're thinking about a sightseeing flight to Antarctica, that is exactly what you want. Um, you have the ability to walk around, look out, see it from different perspectives. And the onboard experience was also pretty luxurious. Menus, uh, they would certainly feed you. And the menus would include things like lobster and caviar, Ooh. as well as champagne. Yum. So you can imagine the people who have tickets for the Antarctica sightseeing flights are in many cases well off. But, you know, you're investing in an experience of a lifetime. Exactly. And so you really, in, in some ways, do get your money's worth, especially when you're back and you're looking at those photos and you're reliving what happened on that, on that plane. So Air New Zealand Flight 901 was also the assignment of a lifetime for the pilot and co-pilot that particular day. Captain Jim Collins and co-pilot Greg Casson were both experienced pilots, but neither of them had flown over Antarctica before. Mm. Uh, this was the first time for both of them taking this flight, and that made it a really special treat for them as well. As with most things, there's a first time for everything. So even though Collins and Casson had not flown that route, they were given a briefing 19 days before the flight to prepare them for the route that they would be taking. And that included reviewing a copy of the flight plan from the previous sightseeing flight. That gave them close to three weeks to get comfortable with the flight plan and to prepare for the journey. And for experienced pilots, that's plenty of time. The flight was quite full. 
on the morning of November 28, 1979. There were 237 passengers and 20 crew members, including the flight crew on board that day. Notably, the commentator for the journey that day was Peter Mulgrew, who was quite well known for his role on several expeditions, including one to Antarctica with Sir Edmund Hillary. Edmund Hillary is a name that you might know. He was the first person to summit Mount Everest in 1953. Yes, he was. Yeah. And so, in fact, Hillary, believe it or not, was supposed to be on Flight 901 that day. He regularly served as a commentator on on the sightseeing flights to Antarctica, but he had a speaking engagement in the USA, and he asked his good friend Peter Mulgrew to take his place since he wasn't going to be able to be there. That's amazing, and wow, what a fateful decision. What a fateful decision. Um, Although in the moment, what an honor uh, for Mulgrew to be able to do that, especially knowing that this is the kind of flight that people just clamor to be able to be part of. The sightseeing flight enjoyed a nice smooth takeoff at 7.21 a.m., which was a bit earlier than usual. And prior to the flight's departure, the crew input the flight's coordinates into the onboard computer and followed the predetermined route. And about four and a half hours after takeoff, the plane was flying above Antarctica and specifically was above what was identified as the Ross Ice Shelf, which is an enormous piece of ice from Antarctica's ice shelves and a geological feature that would have been of great interest to those who were on board that day. Collins and Casson were in touch with the radio communications tower at McMurdo Station, which is the U.S. research, research station on the southern tip of Ross Island. Um, and it was a little difficult that day because visibility was starting to decline rather quickly. McMurdo was able to confirm that even though the pilots were having visual difficulties because of all of the clouds in the area, it was much easier to see beneath the clouds at a lower altitude. Hmm. So Collins decided that he would descend significantly to an altitude of about 2,000 feet to make the most of the improved visibility conditions. That's close. It is close. That makes me uncomfortable to hear that. And this is where it gets particularly interesting, too. Um, One thing that's really important to note is that there are air safety regulations in place that prohibit aircraft from descending below 6,000 feet, even if the weather is good, and that's, of course, due to safety reasons. The Air New Zealand Antarctica sightseeing flight would not have been authorized to bend those rules, especially since since Antarctica's weather can be exceptionally temperamental. But it was well known that many of the pilots who flew the route were willing to descend as low as possible to afford passengers every opportunity to get a great look at the continent. The pilots were certainly aware of how expensive it was for people to purchase those tickets for the sightseeing flight, And they would have been very committed to ensuring each person got the most out of every dollar that they spent on the experience. When you think about it, they were all probably pretty in favor of the best customer service they could provide. And if that meant making sure that people on board got perfect photos, they wanted to make sure they could do that for them. Absolutely. I mean, those kinds of flights, it's not just about safety. Like you said, it's about the experience, and the Mm -hmm. pilots felt accountable for creating that experience as best as possible. Yeah, and especially when you're thinking about the way that these planes are configured and the fact that they were encouraged to walk around, look out different windows, get different vantage points of what you're seeing. The closer you can get, the better you'll be able to see. And yeah, those pilots were absolutely looking for opportunities to find every great angle that a person would be able to see so that they could have these 
just really memorable experiences on board. I mean, think about it. Without the view, what is the trip? You're 13 hours You're on a plane. plane for 13 hours. And um, I've done that. I can tell you it's <laughs> nothing, nothing you want to remember. <laughs> so as the plane descended, uh, the aircraft's ground proximity warning system activated, and that caught everyone in the cockpit by surprise. The GPWS only activates when a plane is dangerously close to crashing. And since the flight was over the Ross ice shelf, it was highly unlikely that they could have been on course to collide with anything. Still, the cockpit was suddenly echoing with the sound of an alarm that was shouting, whoop, whoop, pull up. And at 1249, the field engineer on board announced the flight was 500 feet above ground, then 400 feet above ground. He didn't have time to announce a lower altitude. Shortly after that, as Captain Collins asked for a go-around power that is requested during an aborted landing, the plane crashed into the side of Mount Erebus. According to the flight plan that the pilots had reviewed, Mount Erebus, which is an active volcano, should have been almost 30 miles to the east of the aircraft. Oh, no. And that led a lot of people to wonder what happened. It took some time and several large-scale investigations to fully understand the contributing factors that led to Air New Zealand Flight 901's demise. But before there were answers, there were victims. Of the 257 people on board that day, there were no survivors. Investigators believe that every person on the plane died immediately upon impact. In interviews after the crash, some victims' family members reflected on what would have been happening on the plane in the moments just before the impact. Most people would have been out of their seats. They would have actively been moving throughout the cabin. They would have been position, positioning themselves near windows to get great photos because this is the point where they would be the closest to the continent during the flight. Knowing that visibility had not been ideal prior to the plane's descent, there probably would have been even more excitement and anticipation as the continent finally came into view. And based on the cockpit voice recorder, which was recovered, there was a very short time between when the GPWS alerted the crew to the impending crash and when the plane made impact. Most people would not have had time to process what was happening, so it's unlikely that there would have been any panic that would have swept through the plane. And for most people, their final moments would have been filled with the view of one of the most beautiful and the most remote spots on the planet. In fact, Film from a passenger's camera that was recovered from the crash site and later developed is believed to have captured the moment of impact. What? Yeah. It shows a very clear shot of one of the plane's windows splattered with fuel. I can't even wrap my mind around the fact that there's a picture that exists that basically shows... The exact moment of impact for at least yeah. part of the plane. And, you know, we'll, um, we'll put this on the website as part of the show notes for today's episode. It, it's pretty stunning. Um, people, and it, it really kind of demonstrates, people were taking pictures until the very last moment. Right. And that's really a good sign. Um, it suggests that they probably were spared some of the terror that could have otherwise accompanied a truly unspeakable tragedy yeah, like I, this. I think that's probably the only consolation in all of this, right? Because it is a tragedy, but yeah, that it was quick, that they didn't know. And like you said, they were looking out the window. Their attention was averted to other 
things. And yeah. You don't like to think much about mortality, especially when it comes to situations like this. But I do think that the, the silver lining in all of this is that the people on board probably had an absolutely wonderful time and had no idea when that wonderful time stopped. Yeah. And if there is a good way to go, it's probably in the middle of joy as opposed to, you know, even 10 seconds of panic. And for most people, they probably didn't have anything but that joy. And that's, it, 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 I hope that that's truly what happened, but it is kind of a nice thing to think about that they were just genuinely happy in those final moments for them. So it took quite a bit of time for Air New Zealand to acknowledge the plane's fate. Um, In fact, Flight 901's final transmission occurred prior to 1 o'clock that afternoon. And by 2 o'clock, the U.S. Navy reported that they had not been able to contact the crew. The plane was due to land in Christchurch for refueling just after 6 o'clock p.m. And the airline staff initially told family members who were waiting for the plane that it was common for the flight to run a little bit late. By 9 p.m., though, at approximately the time the flight would have run out of fuel, Air New Zealand alerted the press that the aircraft was believed to be missing. Four hours later, at 12.55 a.m., the U.S. Navy spotted debris on Mount Erebus that was proven to be the missing aircraft the next morning. At that time, it was clear that there weren't any survivors. So in the days that followed the crash, there was a pretty extensive search and rescue effort dubbed Operation Overdue, um, and that was conducted with the goal of locating and identifying the bodies of each and every victim. The process itself was intense and pretty laborious, uh, keeping in mind that the plane crashed into a volcano at 300 miles per hour. Many bodies were charred from the resulting fire that started when 70 tons of jet fuel spilled from the plane and ignited the cabin. Right. And additionally, many bodies were fragmented after the impact. Uh, Some people had to be identified just by the possessions that were in their pockets. And the investigation was managed by Inspector Jim Morgan. Uh, He provided some very extensive detail about the efforts involved with the investigation, with the body identification, and the goal of exhuming and repatriating the remains in a very dignified way. That's a very noble endeavor that they embarked upon to do that, to go to that extensive effort. To think about what it takes, you know, especially the emotion involved in that, um, And a lot of times when you're thinking about identifying bodies, it is somewhat easier. Um, It's not pleasant, but it's easier. When you're dealing with remains that, in this case, they're charred, they're, you know, incomplete, that makes it that much more difficult, it takes that much more time, and it's probably that much more horrific to have to walk through as far as that process is concerned. So thinking about the investigation report, the first investigation report was known as the Chippendale Report because it was compiled by New Zealand's Chief Inspector of Air Accidents, Ron Chippendale, and it was released about six months after the crash in June of 1980. There was a lot of strong evidence that detailed what happened in the hours and even the moments before impact because the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder were found intact. The Chippendale report concluded that pilot error was to blame for the crash. And specifically, the report suggested that Captain Collins was at fault because of his decision to descend below the minimum recommended altitude for the aircraft to fly. He was unable to visually confirm his location. And although he had thought he was close to the Ross Ice Shelf, he was instead flying directly over Mount Erebus. As it turned out, though, 
the New Zealand public wasn't particularly inclined to accept the Chippendale report. Interesting. Yeah. Um, many people, including Captain Collins' widow Maria, believed that there was information that was being withheld. In fact, Maria was livid that her husband was being given almost the sole blame for the incident that took the lives of 257 people. I'm sure. So the New Zealand government called for an additional investigation, which was conducted by Justice Peter Mann. The resulting report was released about a year later, in April of 1981, and it completely reversed the findings of the Chippendale Report. Instead of pilot error, Mann determined that the cause of the crash was the result of decisions and flight path changes that were made in the weeks before the flight. Changes, by the way, that the pilots were unaware of, and if they had been aware of them, would have proven to have been of no concern and would have resulted in a safe flight for everyone. Wow. So they were basically acting on old data. Uh Uh-huh. So I had mentioned uh, Captain Collins and co-pilot Kasson received a copy of the flight plan during their briefing 19 days before Flight 901 took off, which was November 28th of 1979. What neither pilot knew was that the flight plan reflected a typo and was therefore different from the flight plan approved by the New Zealand Department of Transport Civil Aviation Division. Another pilot noticed the discrepancy based on his comparison of the computerized flight route he took and the printout of the flight route he was supposed to take. So that pilot reported the error to Air New Zealand who corrected the flight path but did not notify the crew of Flight 901 that there was a change. The most notable difference in the flight paths related to Mount Erebus. In the flight plan that was presented to the pilots of Flight 901, they were supposed to fly approximately 30 miles to the east of Mount Erebus. But in the corrected flight plan, they were routed to fly directly over Mount Erebus. When the pilots entered the coordinates into the plane's computerized system that morning before takeoff, they didn't compare the coordinates to the printouts of the maps that they had. If they had done so, they would have noticed the issue. So they just assumed that there were no changes, entered them like Because why would there be? Exactly. Because no one told them that there were changes. Yep. And so, but still, if the airline had explicitly told them about the change to the route, there would have been significantly less room for error. There's also one additional component that contributed to the crash, which is critical to consider, and that is the impact of visibility and specifically a condition called sector whiteout. So sector whiteout is kind of like an optical illusion. It makes it almost impossible to differentiate between overcast skies and snow and ice, Mm. meaning everything looks similar and the horizon below the cockpit looks flat. For the pilots, they were expecting to see snow, ice, mountains, and clouds, and that's exactly what they saw. The trouble, though, is that because of sector whiteout, the ice and clouds that they thought they were seeing were really the imposing mountain before them. Oh, no. So combined with the fact that they believed they were miles away from Mount Erebus, they had no reason to believe anyone was in danger that day. Mann's report absolved the pilots for any wrongdoing, and instead placed full blame on Air New Zealand's executives and the fact that the flight plan changed without notifying the pilots who would be flying it. Air New Zealand ultimately went to court to recover the costs they incurred during man's investigation and to overturn the report's findings, and the court threw out the monetary request but did rule that man overstepped his authority during his investigation. 
Still, they didn't go so far as to overturn the findings that Air New Zealand's management had conspired to commit perjury and cover up wrongdoing related to sharing the flight plan with the pilots. Wow. So Air New Zealand Flight 901 is still an open wound in New Zealand. Um, New Zealand has a population of not quite 5 million people, and it's full of just these lovely close-knit communities that were completely rocked by this monumental loss. Most of the people who were on board that day were from New Zealand. All 20 crew members and 180 passengers called New Zealand home. In addition, there were 24 Japanese citizens, 22 U.S. citizens, six U.K. citizens, two Canadians, and one citizen each from Australia, Switzerland, and France. So you can tell the clear impact it would have on New Zealand especially. Certainly an international flight, but so many of them directly from that that community. The aircraft itself was never removed from Mount Erebus. Most of the year it's covered in snow and ice, but in warmer months, even today, it's possible to see the wreckage from the air. Oh, yeah. I don't think I want to see that. No. Um, in, the, uh, in the years... Since then, um, specifically in 2008, uh, Justice Mann was posthumously awarded the Jim Collins Memorial Award by the New Zealand Airline Pilots Association for exceptional contributions to air safety. Um, What they said is, in forever changing the general approach used to transport accident investigations worldwide. So an incredible impact on aviation and aviation safety uh, from what he was able to do. Many of the victims' family members continue to speak out on behalf to remember them, especially in response to questions about whether the pilot should bear any responsibility in the crash. So in 2009, just about a decade ago, executives from Air New Zealand stated that both Captain Collins and co-pilot Casson were highly regarded aviators that deserve the respect of the general public. That event marked the first time that Air New Zealand openly apologized for the airline's response in the aftermath of the accident. Many of the victims' families received nothing more than flowers sent to them in the weeks after the crash, and the executives admitted that they did not receive the compassion they should have after losing their loved ones. So many mistakes made, and these mistakes were recognized. It took decades to do. 30 years later. It took decades to do. Um, Also, in 2009, some of the victims' loved ones had the opportunity to visit the crash site. Um, This was the 30th anniversary Mm. of the incident, so an opportunity um, to to travel there. There were just six people who went by helicopter to the site. Among them was Pip Collins, who was Captain Collins' daughter. The Collins family fought for decades to restore dignity to their family name, and especially to Captain Collins' reputation. There was a significant amount of public backlash toward the Collins family um, in the weeks after the, the crash. And in fact, their family home was broken into at one point, and the intruder did nothing more than take a photo of him and rip it in half. Wow. So you can imagine the power behind restoring dignity to his reputation, to their family as a whole, uh, knowing that for a long time people did place a lot of blame on him and expect that this was human error. Um, also of note, in 2018, Air New Zealand came under fire for referencing Antarctica in one of their in-flight safety videos. 
you know how a lot of uh, a lot of airlines will do kind of fun or entertaining videos sure. as part of the safety and instructions. they're by the way so great to watch and people really do laugh and relax when those things come on <laughs> and, and they pay attention which they is do. critical yeah um, but yeah Air New Zealand featured Antarctica and many of the victims family members came out to condemn the airline for doing that saying it was insensitive and a dishonor to the memories and legacies of those who lost their lives. So another uh, kind of important note, this, it, this was now 40 years ago um, that this crash took place, but there are still family members who remember these legacies. There are still people who know the victims who are on board. And uh, so it's important to remember that sometimes these can really impact uh, you know, how people are, are going to look at different situations. And something that seems as benign as showcasing Antarctica and in a safety video can bring back some really negative emotions yeah, for people. trauma, absolutely, yeah. of what they went through. But, you know, it's it's an incredible story when it you is. think about it. It's really just like this fateful sequence of events. So what if the pilots hadn't descended so low? Yeah. What if they had the right coordinates yeah things could have turned out differently and we hear that in so many of these stories it's like the most unique combination of factors that lead to this eventual disaster Mm -hmm. that when we look back through the eyes or lens of an investigation could have been prevented if only and it's really amazing too that investigation so man doing his investigation and really bringing justice really into the equation for the pilots so that there was clarity around well what was their ownership in this because as as you talked about that was a lot for the families to bear yeah and to know that the first investigation report had such different information in it to have the sense that there could be information that was being withheld that was not being presented properly that would impact where the fault lay because even though you don't necessarily want to talk about fault when it comes to these situations, mm-hmm. there is fault. Something happened. Something went wrong. Was it a person? Was it the technology? And in this case, it could have been prevented, which is what's truly heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. They easily could have updated the pilots. You know, we gave you this information, but it's three weeks old now, so we're going to have to give you new information. That would have saved 257 lives that day. So it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of heartbreak, but again, a lot of, you know, the legacy from this, you know, really is something that I don't think anybody in New Zealand would ever forget and did change aviation, you know, specifically how those types of flights are offered. Yeah, it's a great story. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's one of my favorites, um, you know, when, when thinking a little bit about how sometimes you do have to dig a little bit deeper to get all of the facts for any story that you hear. You know, that was, that's a really haunting story. And I have to tell you after just now, like Googling that picture, I cannot get that picture of the oil splattered against the window out of my mind. It's just literally like you're, you're a witness to history, but not the kind of history that, you know, is, is positive, right? I mean, that was an absolute tragedy. It stays with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is one of those things that is very difficult to forget. So, yeah, yeah we will definitely uh, get a copy of that up with our show notes on our website. And, you know, there are certain negative aspects to these stories, right? Just because of the kinds of stories they are, they're often very tragic. And, yep. you know, we are drawn to them, as we explained in our very first episode, for that reason. And yet, I wouldn't call either one of us 
uh, pessimistic or generally negative people or people that seek out negativity. You know, I'm actually kind of proud of how we've adapted in this time of staying home to stay safe. Mm -hmm. So, you know what I've really been trying to focus on? I've been really trying to focus on like finding the positive. I think we said that too, like last episode. Um, But I think it really helps to make sure that we're taking stock of what we do have and being really gracious and grateful about those things, you know, and just actually finding opportunities for bits of humor and being okay to laugh too. You know, it's like, it's okay to laugh, you know? So yeah. It's in addition to that being totally true. You have just reminded me of one of the most hilarious things that I have seen on the internet in a really long time. (laughs) So for a lot of us, we're getting into remote work. And so with remote work comes learning all kinds of new technologies, most of which we don't typically use all the time. So You've probably used Zoom before, right? I have. Or Microsoft Teams. or Okay. So the new thing right now is that whenever you're on these video calls, people are putting up these ridiculous backgrounds behind them. Have you seen that? I have. have been on calls where people have done that. Oh, I I am loving everything that the internet is doing with these backgrounds right now. Me too. It's amazing to see all of the different situations. And sometimes I'm like, wow, I feel kind of sorry for that person. And the other situations (laughs) I'm like... I wish I was there. I wish I had seen it live and in person. Like, <laughs> well, Yeah, because I mean, in some cases, you have people putting up like travel pictures or something behind them, you know, like pretty beaches or forest scenes, something peaceful. Yep. So I see this article pop up the other day about a woman who's in Microsoft Teams, and she's having a little bit of fun with filters and stuff like that. She accidentally turns on this filter that makes her look like a potato. Potato. So, so you've got to picture a potato <laughs> with like dirt in the background, a little bit of grass, but mostly dirt in the background. And it's basically her eyes and her mouth. Like those are the only features that are appearing. It's a potato with eyes and a mouth. So first of all, hilarious, right? Here's the best part. Her team joins the meeting. She can't figure out how to take the filter off. Oh, no. So she leads a team meeting as a potato (laughs) what I mean I'm like I like like an actual (laughs) business meeting like we're going to talk about goals and objectives yes like like, awesome let's review our q2 metrics and I am a potato for today's (laughs) session that is basically what we're looking at here it honestly it was one of those reminders like this is a tough situation for all of us but every once in a while someone is accidentally going to become a potato and (laughs) If it weren't for working from home, we wouldn't get to see the potato. You know, I, by the way, I'm going to toss this up as part of our show notes on our website because please do. You need to see the potato. If you haven't seen the potato, the potato is actually worth seeking out. I laughed out loud at 1130 at night. My husband's like, please, like first get off your phone. And second of all, I don't even want to know how she became a potato. (laughs) I mean, it is, it is worth seeing. So yeah, we're going to have to toss that up on the website. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) Speaking of the website, 
by the way. Um, we would love for you uh, to head to the website if you are looking for our show notes or if you're looking to get in touch with us. Um, TakeToTheSkyPodcast.com is where you're going to find us. Um, that's where we've got a contact form. You can get in touch. If you have a story you'd love for us to cover, if you were involved in an air disaster and you'd love to tell us about it, we want to hear from you. We are also on social media. Uh, you'll find us at uh, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all at Take to the Sky podcast. Um, so feel free to, to find us and send us a message there. And uh, in the meantime, we've got a lot of stories coming up. We certainly hope that you will remember to rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss a single one. And until then, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast, hosted by Shelly Price and me, Stephanie Hupka. And until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>